you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2 this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 2 as we're going through study in the book of Isaiah. Every once in a while, when we're going through difficulties, we need a word of encouragement. Maybe um, a word of hope, and then also a word of exhortation. Have you seen that? It's very needed sometime in our life. Um, I have a, a kind of a resource person at our church, and he has sent me a, a little letter that went out. Uh, it was a wife that was having difficulty, a new wife having difficulty understanding her relationship with her husband and new husband. And um, since she was kind of a techie person, she said in the, in the, in the aspect of uh, uh, computer technology, and this is, she sent it to her, her tech support, kind of as a joke, but this is how it went. She says, dear tech support, last year I upgraded from uh, boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0 and noticed a distinct slowdown in the overall system's performance, <laughs> particularly in the flower and jewelry application, which operated flawlessly under boyfriend 5.0. In addition, husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5, Personal Attention 6.5, and then installed undesirable programs such as NBA 5.0, NFL 3.0, and Golf Club 4.1, and Fishing 3.0. She went on. Uh, conversation 8.0 no longer runs. And house cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the system. <laughs> Please note that I have tried running nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. What can I do? Sign desperate. Here's her reply. Dear desperate, first keep in mind that boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package. <laughs> while husband 1.0 is an operating system. Uh, please enter this command. I thought you loved me, HTML, and try to download Download 6.2, Tears. Do not forget to install GILT 3.0 update. If that application works as designed, Husband 1.0 should then automatically run the application Jewelry 2.0 and Flowers 3.5. <laughs> However, remember, overuse of the above application can cause Husband 1.0 to default to Grumpy Silence 2.5, Unhappy Hour 7.0, or beer 6.1. Please note that beer 6.1 is a very bad program and will download the Snoring Loudly beta application. However, do not under any circumstances install Mother-in-Law 1.0. It runs a virus in the background that'll eventually seize control of all your operating systems. In addition, please do not attempt to reinstall Boyfriend 5.0. These are unsupported applications and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program, but it does have limited memory and cannot learn new applications quickly. <laughs> you might 
consider buying additional software to improve memory and performance. We recommend Cooking 3.0 and Hot Lingerie 7.7. <laughs> well, what has that got to do uh, with my message? Well, whenever Paul would write something in the New Testament, he would always begin with something positive, something encouraging. And then later on, he would then switch to the business at hand. Have you seen that in epistles? Well, the same thing is here in, um, in chapter 2. What we see here is Israel is going through a hard time, and uh, he receives... Isaiah receives a word from the Lord. Matter of fact, three distinct words. Not just simple words, just not one word, but a word from the Lord. And uh, verses 1 through 4 have the first word. Uh, verses 5 through 9, the second word. Verses 10 through 22, the third word. And he begins very positively, but then right away, knowing what they're going through and the cause of what they're going through, he, he speaks very definitively to them. Now, being that this word was written well over 700 plus years before the birth of Christ, the tendency would be to say, well, that was fine for them, but how does that have any application? Well, you'll see very quickly that it's a direct application to us. So what we'll do is we have 22 verses, so we'll just we'll read a few verses and then make some comments and move on from there. So the first word is found in verses 1 through 4. And the word that is given is the Lord promises that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. Let me read that again. It's a long uh, point. The Lord promises that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. I'll get this out of the way here. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Father, we thank you for the word of God. May the word of God pierce our hearts and speak to us. Give it that encouragement that all of us need, we pray in Jesus' name. The Lord promises that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem being the capital of the world. Did you see that? He's talking about the Messiah, verse 4. And he, who is he? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. That Jesus will return again. He will establish a kingdom of peace and prosperity unknown in any other time in the world. He's talking about what we call... The millennium. He's talking about the promise of God establishing his kingdom on this earth. And the center of the world will be in Jerusalem. The promise that all of us have waited for. That's what he's talking about. Now, 
throughout church history, many people sometimes say, well, that, um, that has not always been fully taught. What do I mean? Well, within the first two centuries of Christianity, um, many people believed that Jesus was going to return again and he was going to establish his kingdom and it was going to take place in Jerusalem. But as time went on, Jesus didn't return. The Jews had been scattered over the known world. And about in the third and fourth century, beginning with uh, St. Augustine, they began to believe that passages like this that appear several times in the book of Isaiah, and specifically here, they were to be applied spiritually to the church. You see, the Jewish people had rejected their Messiah, and they were put aside. And actually, all these promises that were here, they could apply spiritually to the church. And so that continued for many centuries. All these promises that are in the Bible were spiritual and spoke of God's blessing on the church. But then something funny happened. In the early 1800s and later, Jews began to move back to Israel. People began, Jewish people began to think about restoring their nation. And then later on in the 1800s, Christian theologians began to rediscover a truth that had been taught beginning in the first and second century, but had long been forgotten. And the truth was that Christ would return, that he would establish his kingdom. But before he would establish their kingdom, there would be seven years of difficulty, tribulation, as depicted in Daniel chapter 9. And prior to the tribulation, the believers, those who really truly believed, would be translated and taken up into heaven, and the saints would rise in the resurrection, and they would go to be with the Lord, to return to, with him when he came back at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. Now, some people even say today that uh, these promises that are made to Israel only reply, apply to the church. Well, that is theological silliness. <laughs> they would say all oh, those truths were never taught throughout the ages. And that's true. They were not taught for many ages. They were not uh, untrue. They had just been forgotten. Now in verses 1 through 4, he makes a promise to the Jewish people that one day he will establish his kingdom and it will take place in the land that we know Israel and it will be the center of the world, the capital of the world, and people will come to hear from God who will reign and rule for a thousand years on Christ, in Christ. Hmm. That's the promise he made to Israel 750 years before the birth of Christ. And it's a promise that he makes to you and to me that one day he will return. The Lord promised that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. That's the promise. That's what we're looking for. What? The blessed hope and the coming of the kingdom of God on this earth. Amen? Okay. What is the second word? In light of what he said in verses 1 through 4, he now makes an application. 
The Lord then calls his people to walk in his light. If verses 1 through 4 are true, and they are, he then calls Israel, and he calls the church, to walk in the light of the Lord. Did you see that? Read with me verses 5 through 9. Come now, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land has been filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. For their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased, but you do not forgive them. In light of what he said in verses 1 through 4, he now calls Israel to walk in the light of the Lord. Why was this word given? Why was this given, word given? Three reasons. Did you see them? One, the people of Israel had begun to be influenced by the pagan nations around them, by the Philistines. In verse 6, because they are filled with the influences of the Philistines, the pagans. They had begun to act and act like the unsafe people. They have begun to think and believe those things they think. That's the first thing. Second thing, they've given themselves over to materialism. They have given themselves over to materialism. Do you see that? In verse 7. And third, they have begun to worship other things than the Lord. They have begun putting other things ahead of the Lord. So he tells them, uh, for you have abandoned your house of Jacob. Why had the Lord abandoned them? Because of the things that they were listed in these verses. They had given them, themselves over to the, the, the beliefs and actions of the Philistines. They had given themselves over to materialism and worshiping other gods. So he tells them, uh, you've abandoned them. And look in verse 9, but you do not forgive them. In that state, he could not forgive them. So he tells them, come, let us walk in the light. Now, this is not a new concept for Israel. Far from it. Far from it. Let me read just a few passages. Isaiah, I mean Psalm 50, 56, 13. Isaiah 56, 13 says this. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. One other passage, Psalm 89. Psalm 89, uh, verse 15. Psalm 89, 15 says this. How blessed are the people who joyfully know joyfully the sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. If you look in Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What was the problem? Why did he tell them? Why did he call them to walk in the light? Because they were being conformed to the world, the unbelieving nations around them, and he calls them to walk in the light. So it was not a new concept in, with Israel, nor is it a new concept in the New Testament. 
In just a few weeks, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, which is a prophecy concerning Jesus. And it says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in darkness, the light will shine on them. Who's that speaking about? Speaking about Jesus. Speaking about Jesus. Jesus comes along. I just want to read two quick passages in John chapter 8 is the first one. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. Then in John chapter 12, verse 35, it says, for a little while longer, this is Jesus, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, you are the light of the world. You're a city set on, on a hill. Walk in that light so you may glorify your Father is in heaven. The final passage that we've looked at several times is in 1 John. Let me read it to you. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light. In him is no darkness. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. So walking in the light is not a new concept in the Hebrew scriptures. Walking in the light is not a new concept in the New Testament. Following the promises in verses 1 through 4, Israel and the believing church are called to walk in the light of the Lord. Okay. Well, you're saying, well, Neil, what does that mean in a very practical, down-to-earth, everyday sense? Without going anywhere else, let's just look at the context. Look at the context in verses 5 through 9. Three things. Three things, look at them. One, we are not to be influenced by unbelievers. We're not to take on their thought, their actions, uh, their philosophies, their way of living. We are not to be influenced by unbelievers. Two, we're not to be given into materialism and the materialism that so consumes the unbelieving world. And three, we're not to put anything ahead of our worship of the Lord. The Lord is number one. No other idols. You say, well, we don't have an idol. Oh, really? Now, let me speak honestly. If we're all honest, and I hope we are, I think we all struggle in our heart of hearts in some measure with those three issues. Listening and allowing the influence of the world to permeate our thoughts and our actions giving our lives over into materialism and the buck, chasing the buck. And three, putting things ahead of our worship of the Lord. No, we're not asking for raising hands, but just think about that, how we all struggle with those three issues. And the Lord calls us to walk in his light, to put those things aside. How do we do that in reality from our heart? Not just surfacing, 
But I'm talking about from the heart. How do we do this? How do we walk in the light of the Lord? Just looking at the context here. Well, I'm not going to leave you without answering that question. And that takes us to our third uh, word that Isaiah has for us and has for the people of Israel. Now, at first, you might not see where I'm going, but be patient. Trust me. The third word is the Lord proclaims that the proud and lofty will be abased. The Lord proclaims that the proud and the lofty will be abased. Verses 10 through 22. Follow along with me as I read. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And he will be against the cedars of Lebanon and all that are lofty and lifted up, against the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, against the hills lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will be completely vanished. The men will go into caves of the rocks, into the holes of the ground, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away the moles and the bats, their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. Therefore, the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to make the earth tremble, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? The Lord proclaims that the proud and lofty will be abased. Now in verses 10 through 22, there's two things mentioned here. One, take cover. <laughs> take cover if you're proud because the Lord is coming and he will abase you. He will put you down. That's number one. And number two, the second message in there, he lists a whole series of things that um, he is against. Do you see that? So, Watch out. Look at it. We saw that in, in, in our study in Revelation. In order to go into the caverns and hide us from the, the awesome power of the Lord. Okay. So the Lord is against the proud. And he will humble them. And then he lists the things that he's against. Okay. Now, first of all, this is not a new concept in the Hebrew scriptures, is it? Not at all. Let me read a couple of passages. Uh, here's a good one. Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that the Lord hates. There are six things the Lord hates. What's the number one thing that he hates? Look what it says. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. What's that? A proud person. There are six things the Lord hates. Let me read the whole passage. There are six things which the Lord hates, yet seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly evil, a false witness who utters lies, and here it is. What is the thing that the Lord hates, and what is seven abomination? The one who spreads strife 
among the brethren. There it is. So this is not a new concept in the Hebrew Scriptures, not at all. Not at all. Let me read um, another passage or two here. Um, Psalm 16.25. There's a way which seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. And uh, how about Psalm 51? That's a good one. Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. This is verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But he is actively against the proud, and he will cause them to be abased. And to use his words, what does the Lord hate? A proud look, haughty eyes. Hmm. So it's not a new concept in the Hebrew Scriptures, neither is a new concept in the New Testament Scriptures, is it? James chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 5. The Lord is actively against the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. Ah, now you're getting where I am. What is it about the pride? Why does the Lord hate pride? What is it about pride? Why is it when it's working in us, that grace that we so need, that we so need to walk in the light of the Lord is not available to us? Why is that? Once again, I'll give you three passages. First one takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember? Satan and his temptation of Eve. He seems so interested in Adam and Eve's welfare. <laughs> his questions and comments seem so soft and has not God. But if you read those three statements by Satan, in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see what? You'll see pride. He thought he knew better than God. He had, God had told him, don't eat from that tree. But Satan came along and said, oh, no, 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 no. I know better. I can help you. The cause for the fall of man was rooted and grounded in pride. Pride. Second passage. In our book here, we'll look at that in a little while. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 is talking about the king of Babylon, but he also talks about the person, the person that inspired the king of Babylon to do that all he did. Listen to what it says. Who's he talking about? Let me read it. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You have been weak in nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights, and I will make myself like the Most High. There it is, there it is. What was the cause of all our problems? It's rooted and grounded in pride, pride. Third passage. Being that we're in Isaiah, let's just stick with that for a minute. There was a king 
who lived during Isaiah's time. And his name was Uzziah. You remember Uzziah? Great man. He reigned for 52 years. Great man. And for most of his life, he was powerfully blessed by God and used by God. But the passage, and we'll come to it, in um, Isaiah chapter 6. Remember? It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That precipitated Isaiah's calling. What happened to Uzziah? Well, it said at the peak of his power, at the peak of his blessing, he became lifted up and became proud. And he thought he could go in the temple and offer incense so that not only was he the king, but he was the high priest. And it said that as he fought with the priest, leprosy broke out on his face. And he was banished to a house alone by himself. And he spent the rest of his life and his son ruled in his place. Speaking about pride, I thought I'd go to the dictionary. Came up with the Webster's Collegiate Dictionary definition of pride. Let me read it to you. I might read it twice. Pride, a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether cherished in mind or displayed in bearing or in conduct. Let me read it again. A high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether cherished or in mind or displayed in bearing or in conduct. It's a story told about a pastor who was given a beautiful certificate from his church commenting on what wonderful service and humility he had served all the days in his church. The only problem was he couldn't put it up on the wall because as soon as he did, he would be showing how proud he was of his own humility. I skirted through um, Pastor Swindoll's book on illustrations and came up with this poem that kind of fits right in with this. Let me read it to you. You might have heard something close to this. Sometimes when you're feeling important, sometimes when your ego is way up, sometimes when you take it for granted that you are the prize-winning pup, sometime when you feel that your absence would leave an unfillable hole, just follow these simple instructions and see how it humbles your soul. Take it a bucket, take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Now pull it out fast, and the hole that remains is a measure of how you'll be missed. <laughs> you may splash as you please as you enter and stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find in a minute it's back where it was before. So the Lord is actively against the proud, working against the proud, working against our pride, but gives grace to the humble. How does that work? Remember I said what the problem was with Israel and what our problem is? Sometimes we allow ourselves to be conformed to the world. Um, we take on their thoughts, their words, their actions. Um, sometimes we get caught up in chasing the buck and 
getting all the stuff we think we need. And sometimes we put things ahead of our worship of the Lord, not making the Lord number one. Well, there's a scripture that I thought I'd quote, one last scripture. It's Romans 12, 2. Paul writes this, and do not be conformed to this world. Does that not speak exactly to us and the problem we're facing? Do not be conformed to this world, but, but, he doesn't end, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that's an interesting word. I looked it up, transformed. It's a command. He's commanding you to be transformed. But it's in the passive voice, which means you can't do it. <laughs> He's commanding you to do something you can't do. So a living translation, the Travisano translation of that particular verse would be, and do not be conformed to this world, but allow yourself to be transformed. That's, that's a good translation. But allow yourself, because it's not you doing it. It's God. Now, what did Paul say? His life, his verse, his, his life verse was, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was transformed. Everything that Paul did, all the wonderful things that he did, he did not do it, but it came about through the grace of God. But how do you get that? How does that begin to work in your life? <laughs> um, he's actively against our pride. He's actively working against the proud, but he gives what? Grace, the very thing you need to walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, can I make some suggestions? Because you can't do it. But there might be some things, some attitudes, some places that you might place yourself where that grace becomes much more available to you. Let me share, not three, but five. One, admit your own sinfulness that overwhelms every part of your life. Admit to it. Confess it. Maybe for the first time, by accepting Christ and the free gift that is offered to you through his death and resurrection. Admit that. Make it part of your life. And continually, as you walk as a Christian, continually admit your own sinfulness and confess it. Confession means agree with God. Agree with God at your own lostness and how that permeates your whole life. How it oftentimes controls your thoughts, words, and deeds. That might be a good place to start. Two, begin to really bring all things to the Lord. Instead of trying to solve them in your own strength, instead of trying to solve them in your own personality, and in all, your, all that you have, why don't you just begin to commit them to the Lord in prayer? You believe in prayer? Oftentimes, someone said, the greatest sin of most Christians is prayerlessness. Because when we don't pray, you know what we're saying? You know what we're saying? I can do it myself. I don't need to pray. I can make this thing happen. I can preach this sermon. I can be a witness. I can do whatever I have to do today in my own strength because I'm not even going to ask you, God, to help me. And what is that a manifestation of? 
you got it. Maybe begin to trust him a little bit more in prayer. Third, begin to cherish, meditate, and apply God's word in your daily life. Instead of just a perfunctory reading of the scriptures, which I happen to fall into all the time, how about focusing in on what, the, what is it saying to you today? How does it apply to you today? What are the riches and the treasures fall in love with God's word? What did it say in Psalm 1? Not walking, standing, or sitting with wicked, but what does he do? He nourishes, he cherishes God's word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Fourthly, begin to thank God for what he's given you. Begin to thank God for what he's given you. Not focusing on what he hasn't given you. Begin to just thank God for what he's given you. What does it say in Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Oh, my friends. Begin to thank God for what he's given you, not for what hasn't happened yet. Fifth, begin not to demand what should be rightfully coming to you. Really? I've got a list of five things that you deserve. Really? Don't demand them. The classic example is, is, is found in Philippians chapter 2. Remember Jesus? He didn't grasp. Being in the form of God, he did not grasp. He did not hold on. He did not demand the things that rightfully belonged to him. But he did what? He humbled himself. And God did what? Exalted him. God exalted him. Hmm. Paul wrote, and I said this before, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Everything that Paul did, everything, came through the grace of God. He goes on and says, but that grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. But then he ends the verse. I love this verse. This is my life verse, if you didn't know that. But even then, everything I did was by the grace of God. Do you see that, my friends? He is calling you in light of the soon coming of Jesus to walk in the light of the Lord. I can't do it, Neil. I know you can't. Neither can I. But I, by the grace of God, can do what he has called me. What's the secret? What's the secret? God is actively opposed to the proud, but gives grace. That wonderful thing that all of us so need. He gives grace to the humble. May God grant us the ability to allow him to transform our hearts by his grace. Pray with me, please. Lord, we uh, oftentimes are 
find ourselves in a pickle of our own making because we were allowing ourselves to be conformed to this world in thought, word, and deed. How much we need to walk in your light. We see oftentimes the conflicts and the difficulties we bring them on ourselves because we don't walk in the light. And each one of us admit this morning, fully and completely, that oftentimes we can't do it. We can't walk in the light. We need your grace. We pray. We put aside our pride. We'd open our heart to your love and be, allow it to begin to change our hearts. Change our hearts, O oh Lord, even as that song said. Make it ever new. By your grace, that we might walk in the light you've called us to do, in light of your soon coming, in light of your millennial kingdom, in light of the blessed hope that we're all waiting for. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me this morning.